Welcome to Inform at the Commonwealth Club, bringing you people who are changing the world. Subscribe to our email newsletter so you'll never miss an upcoming event. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash email. You can buy tickets to upcoming events in San Francisco and watch or listen to our past programs at commonwealthclub.org. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're looking at ways that laws have been used to discriminate against one type of American or another and what can be done to change things. Six years ago, Richard Rothstein, a distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute, wrote a book called Color of Law, in which he highlighted ways that direct and indirect government action at all levels of government had caused segregation. Richard's daughter, Leah Rothstein, is a housing policy expert and consultant. Together, the Rothsteins published a new book titled Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. The Rothsteins set out to provide a blueprint for addressing segregation, describing dozens of tangible strategies they say can challenge residential segregation and help address the legal abuses of the past. We invited them to talk to us in San Francisco and explain their ideas. The Rothsteins were in conversation for Inform with Brian Watt, the morning news anchor for KQED. Today's program is sponsored by Silicon Valley Community Foundation and special thanks to our community partner, Faith and Action Bay Area, for working to uphold all people's dignity and change unjust systems. Now, here's Leah and Richard Rothstein talking with Brian Watt. Thank you, Faith in Action, for your important work in the Bay Area. Thank you also to the Silicon Valley Foundation for all of its support that it's giving to this program. And thank all of you for being here online, in person. This is a very important conversation, uh, whether you are here in the Bay or whether you are listening around the country. I am Brian Watt. If you know me, you know my bedtime is approaching. Um, <laughs> So, Richard and Leah, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, and we are here to discuss your book, which is Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. The book came out in 2017, and it really enhanced all of our understanding of the impact of the actions taken by the government at the federal, state, and local levels to segregate our country. And this was not, as that book states clearly, individual prejudice or insurance company action or inaction. This was state-sanctioned segregation, and we are still living with the impacts today. So before we jump into just action, and this is going to sound like I'm asking you to summarize your whole book, can, can I just ask both of you to walk us through how we got here? I want to start with Richard. I mean, most of us know about Jim Crow, separate but equal I have done stories on redlining, but how did government segregate America? Government segregated America through many policies at the federal and state and local levels. They were all racially explicit. It wasn't the implicit result of race-neutral policies. Uh, I got into this because uh, the Supreme Court in 2007 prohibited Louisville, Kentucky from enacting a very trivial school desegregation plan, and Chief Justice John Roberts explained that uh, Louisville, Kentucky was segregated de facto, he called it. 
because of, as you said, private bigotry and banks and real estate agents that discriminated, that people just liking to live with each other of the same race, and, uh, economic differences. And I remembered reading about something in Louisville where there was a white homeowner in a single-family home in a suburb of Louisville called Shively. He um, had an African-American friend living in the center city of Louisville. He was a decorated Navy veteran, uh, had a wife and child, wanted to move to a single-family home, and nobody would sell him one. So the white homeowner bought a second home in the suburb of Shively and resold it to his African-American friend. And when the African-American family moved in, an angry mob of white neighbors surrounded the home protected by the police. They threw rocks through the windows. The police made no effort to stop it. They dynamited and firebombed the home. Police made no effort to stop that either. And when this riot was all over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year jail sentence, the white homeowner for sedition for having sold a home in a white neighborhood to a black family. I said to myself, this doesn't sound to me much like de facto segregation. Well, this was 2007, and that started me off on a 10-year quest to look into how not only Louisville, but every metropolitan area in this country came to be segregated. And I found not only was it state-sponsored violence, the police, the prosecutors, they're all agents of the state. Uh, what happened in this incident in Louisville was a 14th Amendment violation, constitutional violation. And there were hundreds of communities around the country, here as well, California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, where there was state-sponsored violence to drive African-Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased or rented. And then there were other uh, policies of the FHA and VA, particularly after World War II, subsidized white families to move out of urban areas into single-family homes in all white suburbs, like that one I just described in Louisville, prohibited African-Americans, written policy, written federal policy, prohibited African-Americans from doing so. The white families who bought those homes gained over the next couple of generations wealth because nobody expected it, but those homes appreciated the value. The, uh, they were initially sold in 1950 or so for about $8,000 a piece. In today's money, that's about $100,000. I don't think there's a suburb in this country where you can buy a house for $100,000 today, $300,000, dollars $500,000. Here in California, a couple of million dollars. So the white families who were subsidized by the federal government, they didn't intend to get rich, they just wanted a place to live, but subsidized by the federal government to buy these homes that appreciated in value, African-Americans prohibited from doing so. The result is that today, because of these unconstitutional actions, and I keep on emphasizing the fact that it's unconstitutional on the part of the federal government, because of these African-Americans whose incomes on average are about 60% of white incomes, and you'd think that a family's income was, uh, on average, family incomes were on average were about 60% of white incomes. Family wealth for African-Americans would also be about 60% of white wealth. You can save the same amount of money from the same uh, income. But in reality, African-American wealth is only about 5% of white family wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio, which underlies so much of the racial inequality we have in this country today, was entirely attributable to unconstitutional policy of federal, state, and local governments. There were other policies as well uh, to create an apartheid society. So I wrote this book in 2017, summarizing all of the many, many policies that I found in, in my research that created segregation in this country. As someone who took that book to heart, maybe even the first person to take that book to heart, 
Leah, as an activist, why is it so important that we understand this issue as one of government sanctioned segregation? Well, the problem with this myth of de facto segregation that we've all come to accept, and you know, before the color of law was just the way we all understood why our communities are segregated, it attributes it to accident or personal choice or just sort of a natural occurrence. And when you look around and you see how segregated our neighborhoods are and the disparities that exist and the racial inequalities that exist because of that, and think that it happened by accident, and you have no agency to do anything about it. And you think anything that happened by, a- by accident can only unhappen by accident. And so we can just wait around and hope that things change and get better. One of the most powerful impacts of the color of law was showing how intentional all of the actions were that went into creating segregated communities, explicitly racial, intentional policies that created a separation of whites and African Americans. And once we see that it was intentional action, we can start to understand that intentional action can do something to undo it. So this is not letting people get away with just saying things like black people prefer to live amongst their own. They like having their own neighborhoods. In fact, this has been a design of a lot of policymakers over the decades and centuries of our country, right? In Just Action, you come back to a point that is black people, African Americans, have been the most profoundly targeted and impacted by segregation. That the change people fight for locally should be focused on that. Why is that important? Well, the policies that created racial segregation were explicitly targeted at keeping African Americans out of white communities. These were racial crimes, unconstitutional actions taken by our government. And so if we want to address that and redress that and provide remedies and challenge that history and the the present that we're left with because of it, we have to be racially explicit in our actions as well. You know, you can't undo racially explicit policy and racial crimes with a race-neutral or race-blind approach. So what I also read is we need to be careful overusing terms like people of color, am I right, Richard, and, and diversity, and, you know, like we have to be careful about putting everyone in, together in these initiatives that we're pushing for, right? We have enormous economic inequality in this country, and it's grown very rapidly in the last 50 years since the mid-1970s. That's a separate problem. It's a serious problem. It's a separate problem from the race problem that we have in this country. Both need to be addressed, but they can't be addressed without distinguishing them and without having remedies that are appropriate to each of those two problems. Certainly, in California, there was enormous discrimination against uh, Hispanics and Asians uh, years past, but that the state actions to segregate African-Americans were much more intense. And I'll give you one example. You're probably familiar, and I described this in The Color of Law, and it's gotten a lot of attention, uh, not just for me in the last few years, with the fact that many homes that were built, the ones that were subsidized by the FHA and VI that I mentioned, had deed clauses that prohibited occupancy or residence by Mexican-origin people, by African-Americans, by Asians. It wasn't just African-Americans. And those deeds permitted neighbors to sue to have 
people who occupied those homes in violation of deeds evicted from homes that they had legitimately purchased. Well, when uh, neighbors went to court to have Hispanic residents or Asian residents evicted, the court said that even though that's what the deed said, they weren't really aimed at Hispanic people because they were really white. And it was only African-Americans who were evicted by the courts in violation of these restrictive covenants, they're called. So it's not that black people are the only ones who've experienced discrimination in this country, but state-sponsored discrimination, exclusion of African-Americans was so much more intense and severe that we're not going to solve our problems of racial inequality without recognizing the unique exclusion that African-Americans have experienced at the hands of our government. Are there some other examples where putting the struggles of all disadvantaged groups behind an initiative turned out to be kind of a reckless move, either vis-a-vis the courts or, or an institution? Richard, I think you might want to answer this. Well, sure. Um, I think what you're referring to is that the Biden administration implemented uh, policies, regulations, that gave special preference for agricultural loans to uh, farmers, uh, all kinds of minority groups. They gave special consideration for loans to restaurant owners, to uh, really everybody except white males. And the court struck them down because there's a well-documented history of Department of Agriculture discrimination against African-Americans, but there's no well-documented history of discrimination against farmers of other races and ethnicities in this country. Certainly, they've suffered from economic inequality, from private discrimination, but the Department of Agriculture specifically denied support to African-American farmers. And had that policy been more narrowly targeted, it might have done something to... uh, redress the inequality that African-American farmers experienced and lost their farms as a result. Leah, in the first chapter, you described the, the building of coalitions locally as really hard, but also really important. Why is this going to make even the most eager participants uncomfortable, this work of building coalitions to take just action? Well, we argue that in order to redress segregation and take on these issues in our communities, we need to start by building local groups that are organized and um, educated to address issues locally that they can um, have an impact on. And to do that, we need to build groups that are biracial and multi-ethnic in our own communities. And we do say that we understand that this is daunting and challenging, you know, due to the racially segregated communities we live in. People these days have fewer social contact with people of other races outside of their workplace than previous generations. To build these groups, we need to build social relationships. People need to work together. We need groups that are African-American and white-led in order to create the change that we're advocating for in this book. And so we give some examples in the book of ways communities have overcome these obstacles, the obstacles that keep people apart and keep people from knowing each other socially. So one is a clever, cool story in Chicago. 
this artist. She's a photographer, Tanika Johnson. So Chicago's unique. It's a, um, the way the city's laid out. It's a perfect grid. And there's a north version of a street and a south version of the street. And every street, the north and south version, has the same house numbers. So she took the map and folded it in half. And the north side was the white side of town, and the south side was the African-American side of town. And when she folded the map, um, houses sat perfectly on top of each other, and she called those houses uh, map twins. And she went and took pictures of the two map twins' houses and asked the residents if they wanted to meet their map twin from the other side of town. And a lot of the residents did. They wanted to. And these were people who'd lived in Chicago their whole lives and had never been to the other race part of town and never knew people from those neighborhoods. So they developed relationships, and they brought people to their neighborhoods and gave them tours. And they understood that they had similar ambitions in life and similar challenges in life, but they were living in very different neighborhoods and very different opportunities and resources around their homes. And so it just started to build some social network and understanding of, of um, how other people lived in their, in their own city. They ended up developing block twin groups, so they did some beautification efforts and supported each other during the pandemic. Now, this is an example of how we can bridge these racial divides. So this was an artist, but she's not an organizer. So the next step is for an organizer to then work with these block twins to start to understand and uncover what they can do, what kind of changes they can advocate for in their cities to address the disparities that they've been learning about between their neighborhoods. This is such a joy to read about in this book, let me just say. It's such a great way into the joy of organizing, the joy of community building, and yes, also the difficulties and the discomfort, the things that you have to overcome. But I had the advantage of being able to read the book before it actually gets sold. It was so lovely to read about what happened in Chicago with the Map Twins. Um, Richard, I, I got to come back to something that you said about the courts coming after these initiatives that is actually a pretty big argument that's made in this book is that local activists do not need to fear the court. In fact, they should defy the Supreme Court. Why shouldn't local activists be worried about some initiative that they push for being struck down by the Supreme Court? Well, they may be struck down and then they'll pick themselves up and try again. But as Leah said, Race-specific crimes need race-specific remedies. Chief Justice John Roberts says we're a post-racial society. doesn't matter what race you are. The way to end discrimination in race is to pretend that race doesn't exist. Clearly, that's not the case. People need to have the courage to press for race-specific remedies. The Supreme Court may strike it down. Before that, there may be lower courts that uphold them, that build a record, there may be Supreme Court justices who dissent. And over time, we might be able to whittle away at this John Roberts view that race no longer matters in this country. It's a view that is completely out of touch with reality, as anybody who's lived in any metropolitan area knows. But the only way we're going to challenge it is if we do challenge it. You know, I'm an old man, as you can tell. I remember in the 1960s, people didn't wait for the Supreme Court to tell them what they could and couldn't do. They took action to redress segregation, and eventually they succeeded. They took some risks. Some of them took really big risks, but some took quite small risks. I don't think that the 
civil rights activists today are going to have to take the kinds of risks that people took in the 1960s, but they might take some. If a college president, you know, we're expecting a Supreme Court decision soon that uh, says that the university admission officers can't consider the race of an applicant in, in affirmative action programs. Well, if a college president says because of the history of discrimination that these students have faced and their families have faced that put them in a less competitive position despite their talents and skills than white students who come from much more advantaged families, we're going to give them some preference. And if university presidents do that on that basis, because that's not a rationale that affirmative action has used for the last 50 years. Affirmative action has used the rationalization, oh, we want a diverse student body so that the white students can benefit from having African-American classmates. That's not the reason we should have affirmative action. The reason we need affirmative action is as a remedy for the unconstitutional policies that put black students at a disadvantage in their application to college. And if a college president uses that rationale as a basis for continuing affirmative action, it's a rationale that hasn't been presented to the courts before, and it could lead to maybe not a victory, but to the beginning of a broader discussion about what we need to do in order to create racial equality in this country. Why do you think, Leah, that residential segregation is not at the top of the country's political agenda? Because it's hard. It's a hard issue to take on. It's a hard problem to try to fix. You know, when lunch counters and restaurants and buses and schools were segregated and those laws changed the next day, the restaurants and the schools and lunch counters and buses looked different. People could just, you know, African-Americans could get on the bus. We change laws around discrimination in housing and things don't necessarily change because there's lots of built-in disparities and inequalities that make it impossible for communities to just naturally desegregate because of all the policies that intentionally segregated them. So I think it's an overwhelming problem and issue for us to take on. And I read The Color of Law like a million other people. And I've worked in affordable housing and I've been a community organizer and I read it and I, I heard my dad's call to action that, you know, once we understand the intentional actions of the government, we understand we have an obligation to, to redress segregation. But I didn't know what to do about it. You know, I came up to him after one of his lectures and asked him, this is an amazing history that we're relearning and uncovering, but what do we do about it? How, how do we take this and make change in our communities? So that's why we wrote this book, to help answer that question. In 2020, we had a racial reckoning in the country after George Floyd's murder. 20 million people across the country marched in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. 20 million people is a lot of people. They were African Americans and whites and urban and suburban you know, they were all over the country in all types of communities marching for racial equality, more people than ever before. And then they went home and put up Black Lives Matter signs in their front lawns or started book clubs or, you know, their companies wrote letters to shareholders denouncing racism and promising to do better. But that doesn't lead to change in how our communities are structured and sort of apartheid system we live in today. So I think that the reason why it hasn't translated to that sort of change is because we, we don't have a clear roadmap or a clear idea of what to do about it. So we get this roadmap or several in Just Action. Let me ask you, what is the first thing 
we need to know or look for when we're deciding to fight against racial segregation? I mistakenly use the word roadmap. We don't actually provide a roadmap. <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately. Some really good ideas. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because every community is different. You know, we can't say that the first thing every community should do is X or Y because every community has different opportunities and challenges and different history. So the first thing, the best thing that any community can do is something, anything. So start to talk to your neighbors, start to form biracial groups and start to advocate for change and learn about the history of your own community, what sort of opportunities they are to affect change and challenge segregation. And our book is full of a lot of examples of these types of strategies and policies a group can advocate for and examples of communities doing it across the country. Hmm. Since we're in California, there are some examples that really jumped off the page at me. Modesto, for example, really kind of came to a reckoning almost accidentally by a retired high school teacher discovering a restrictive covenant what, what happened there? Richard, can you speak to that? Sure, sure. This is a very inspiring story. This is a retired high school teacher. She uh, was running a program in her retirement. Another retired teacher who was Hispanic was a friend of hers, and the first high school teacher was trying to recruit her to participate in this program, and they had a meeting to talk about the program, and at the end of the meeting, uh, the Hispanic teacher, retired teacher, said, you know, I, the strangest thing happened to me. I'm buying this house that I now live in, and the real estate agent showed me the strangest thing in my deed. And, of course, it was a clause that said that the home that she had bought could only be uh, occupied by a, a white person. And the first teacher got curious, and so she went to the county clerk and said, are there anything else like this in the city? And that she wound up documenting that almost 90% of the white neighborhoods in the city were covered by these restrictive covenants. She recruited high school students to help her go through all of the deeds in the, in the city. She then became, as a white teacher, she then became the chairperson of the NAACP's housing committee. And then the city of Modesto found itself holding a golf course that was uh, abandoned and not knowing what to do about it. The, the NAACP housing committee, uh, led by this white woman and others that she had recruited, they began to agitate for mixed-income housing in this abandoned golf course. The city didn't favor it. Certainly neighbors around it didn't favor it. They didn't want mixed-income housing. Uh, they were NIMBYs, not in my backyard. When the book went to press, the final resolution of that dispute hadn't yet happened. But this is an example of what Lee is talking about. You can't say to every community in the country, organize a committee to get the abandoned golf course in your community <laughs> for affordable housing. But the book is full of so many different opportunities, uh, so many different kinds of policies and programs that present themselves that can be addressed at a local level. You don't need federal policy to do that. The federal government has nothing to do with what happens to that golf course. And there are so many things at a local level. They'll make a small difference, each one of them. But if they start to cascade they could actually make a significant difference in the segregation that we know in this country. Thanks for joining us as we listen to Leah and Richard Rothstein in conversation with Brian Watt. You're listening to a broadcast of Inform at the Commonwealth Club of California. You can support our radio program and find out more about our upcoming events that you can see live in San Francisco at commonwealthclub.org slash inforum.
since we're in California, there's actually a question from the audience. How can we enact racially specific laws to undo the harm of residential segregation in California in light of Prop 209, which prohibits consideration of race? I had to remember what Prop 209 is, but thank you, question asker, for pointing out prohibits consideration of race. First, you need people who want to actually enact a policy that would violate Prop 209. So, for example, making sure, and I'm just using this modesto example, as I say, there aren't very many places that have abandoned golf courses, but making sure that if you do build mixed-income housing, give some preferences to African-Americans to be able to compete for those homes, because we have a housing shortage today, especially in California, of all races and ethnicities, and of middle-income families um, of all backgrounds. If you do create a mixed-income development and don't give some preferences to African-Americans who've been historically excluded, they'll be outbid by whites for those mixed-income units. So you need to justify the policy by the history of exclusion in Modesto. That's not the kind of justification that's been used in past challenges. As I say, the, the most controversial part of 209 is banning race consideration and college admissions, and that's all in terms of trying to get diverse classes. Nobody is talking about the importance of uh, affirmative action to remedy the crimes of the past. And if such a policy were enacted by the city of Modesto to uh, remedy the unconstitutional actions of the city government in Modesto, it would create an interesting court challenge to Prop 209. And if you had many of these, the pressure would begin to build. But they have to be justified based on remedies for past crimes. Leah, they're doing something really interesting around restrictive covenants in Marin County. What is Marin County doing to correct or make sure that we acknowledge them? A lot of communities are looking at the restrictive covenants on the deeds of their homes. You know, we've talked about restrictive covenants. They're no longer legally enforceable, but they remain on the deed of a home forever. It's like the property line. It's part of the legal documentation about a home, a property. And like the retired teacher in Modesto, people find these restrictive covenants on the deeds of their own homes, and they're appalled that their own home was so intentionally segregated. And just to see in writing like that the history of your own town. And so a lot of people have then taken it on to address the restrictive covenant history by removing them from deeds. So passing local laws that allow you to strike through the restrictive covenant on your deed because you can't just remove a restrictive covenant from a deed without legal action. So some communities are passing ordinances that allow you to do that more easily because people don't want this history on the documentation of their home. We argue that we need to be aware of our history in order to know that we have an obligation to do something to remedy that history. And if we strike those restrictive covenants from all the deeds, then we'll just forget that that happened and think that our community looks the way it does by accident. And Marin County is one. They, they didn't strike it through. They did something a little more helpful in terms of future organizing around this. They put, I believe, a statement on top of the, the restrictive covenant saying, we're appalled that this happened and this isn't aligned with our community values. So that's better than striking it completely. What's even better is to do something to change what Marin County looks like. A lot of communities have inclusionary zoning ordinances. So this is a policy that's adopted through a zoning code. It says that when new housing is built in, in their community or in certain zones in that community, some of the units have to be set aside at affordable prices for lower and moderate income families. 
a community like Marin could have an inclusionary zoning policy and create some more affordable units in their community, but that doesn't address the history that the restrictive covenants created. It doesn't mean that African Americans will get the opportunity to move into those units without racial preferences for those units, and that racial preference could be linked directly back to those restrictive covenants that kept them out of Marin to begin with. Uh, the questions have come in from the audience, and I love this. I work in the public sector. There tends to be very few people outside of the regulars, parentheses, wealthy, educated homeowners, in conversations around housing. How do we bring more people to the table who are most effective, e.g. renters and homeless individuals? How do we do it? We start to talk to them and, and start creating groups and you know, working with organizers who know how to do this and bringing people out to public meetings. I think it is, a lot of us know about the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. It refers to people who say they support affordable housing in general, but when there's a, an affordable housing project proposed for their neighborhood, they're vehemently against it. And NIMBYs show up at city council meetings and planning commission meetings, and they effectively block affordable housing projects all over the country. One of the reasons they're so effective is because the, the NIMBYs, the people who think they're going to be negatively impacted by this affordable housing development, show up to the meetings. But the people who will benefit from that development don't because they aren't identified yet. We don't know who will be able to live in those, in those units. But if a group in a community that was proposing an affordable housing or multifamily housing development had organized a base of people who understood that we support diversity and inclusion in our community and we understand that building a diverse type, you know, diverse range of housing types in our community will help us get there, they could then show up to those meetings and advocate to block the NIMBYs from their obstructionist tactics. Um, fair housing policy. Can you give us a brief history of that? And it, it actually sounds like New Orleans is an example of building on the history of fair housing policy? In 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act, which prohibits ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. It's not very well enforced, so there's still enormous discrimination that goes on. This is another area of local action that, that can be taken. In our book, Just Action, we describe an expose by a Long Island, New York a newspaper that sent testers, that is, matched pairs of black and white pretend home buyers to go to real estate agents to see how they were treated. And they wore hidden body cameras to record the activities of the, and statements of the real estate agents. And what they found was in over 50% today, this is in 2000, well, 2019, not in 1950, not in 1960, but in 2015, 50% of the African Americans in Long Island, New York, were discriminated against when they attempted to work with a real estate agent to buy a home. There's no reason to believe that uh, New York is any worse than California in this respect, and local real estate agencies should be the subject of fair housing testing everywhere because people don't know they're being discriminated. When an African-American home buyer goes to a real estate agent and is only shown homes in some less desirable neighborhoods, that home buyer doesn't know that somebody with the identical qualifications as she who is white is going to be shown different homes. The only way to know that is to have a, a paired testing program like they did in New York. And the only way that can be done is if these fair housing centers 
are better financed, and they're not. They're starved for funds. And Leah talked about the 20 million people who participate in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. I don't think that making contributions is the end all and be all of activism, but it's certainly a place to start is to support and fund the fair housing centers in this state that can root out this kind of discrimination, this discrimination in rentals as well as in housing purchases. In fact, it's easier to, to test discrimination in rentals because if uh, an African-American with a black-sounding name calls up an apartment manager and asks if an apartment is available and uh, somebody with a white-sounding name then calls the same apartment manager and is told a different story, you have the beginnings of an investigation at the discrimination. So the Fair Housing Act is one thing. The other thing I think you may be referring to is a rule that the uh, Obama administration implemented uh, called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule, which stems from the uh, Fair Housing Act. And its uh, assumption is that although explicit discriminatory policies no longer exist, there are many, many programs and policies in communities all over the country that have the effect of continuing and perpetuating discrimination. And the rule required jurisdictions, cities, to come up with a plan to eliminate that kind of discrimination. Every community in the country was required to do it. The Trump administration uh, repealed the rule. The Biden administration is considering uh, reinstituting it. But what we describe in the book is a fair housing center in New Orleans that, pursuant to this rule, identified all kinds of problems in New Orleans that continued and perpetuated segregation. They mobilized uh, committees throughout the city of residents to support reform of these rules. And the city of New Orleans eventually came up with a uh, new plan that permitted much more uh, non-segregated housing development to take place. So this was an attempt to implement this rule. And this can be done whether the rule is there or not. You know, the, the Trump administration repealed the rule, but you don't need the rule to do that. Any fair housing center, any local civil rights group can organize to do the same kind of survey of the policies in their community that reinforce and perpetuate segregation and begin to organize people to press to change it. A question from the audience. Love the Chicago example, but with California having such a transplant in immigrant, some undocumented community, what needs to be done to build community and cultivate a housing secure community amongst such a diverse population? Yeah. In Menlo Park, a group there started organizing and educating themselves. It actually started when they read The Color of Law, and there's a piece in there about, you know, quite a bit of information about how the Silicon Valley um, came to be segregated. And, and they, you know, wanted to learn more and educate their neighbors and their community about it. And so they created this uh, workshop called Color of Law Menlo Edition. And they, they did it all around their community, rotary clubs, the school district invited them. They did it online during the pandemic. You know, they did it to hundreds and hundreds of participants went through this workshop. So they developed a base of people in their community in Menlo Park, which is, you know, at the heart of Silicon Valley, median home prices there over $2 million. It's a very exclusive community. You wouldn't think that, we wouldn't think that this is where this kind of thing would get seeded and grow. So they built a, a base of people who understood that their community looked the way it does because of all of these policies of the government. And it was no accident that the community is so expensive and mostly white. 
fast forward a couple of years, the school district there proposed to build 90 units of affordable housing for teachers on a vacant school site that it owned. Teachers in the in the area, 30% of them left their jobs every year, primarily because they couldn't find affordable housing anywhere near where they worked in Menlo Park. So the district wanted to do something about this and propose building this housing. Now, the housing was sited, you know, in a park. Not a lot of neighbors, but nonetheless, a few people decided that they wanted to try to block it, that it would, you know, hurt the character of their community. And so they put a measure on the ballot that would have made that development impossible and made any rezoning in the future a subject that the voters would have to approve. So effectively making any multifamily housing in the future impossible. And this group, Menlo Together, it was called, it is called, had built the space of people who understood their history and had committed to a shared vision of an inclusive and diverse community. And so they were ready to fight this initiative, and they went door to door every weekend, and they talked to their neighbors. And I talked to the leaders of this campaign, and they would tell me, they would stand in front of these big houses in Menlo Park and think, okay, I'm going to go knock on this door. I don't think this person is going to be on our side, but let's see. And most of the time people were on their side because they understood the exclusivity of their community. The fact that there was no affordable housing was hurting all of them. Their kids couldn't afford to move back home. Their teachers were leaving, hurting their kids' education. And their favorite cafe was closing because it couldn't get people to work there. So they ended up defeating the measure. And now they have the support of even more people in their community, and they're strategizing what to do next. And I use this as an example because it's, it's a community we wouldn't expect this to happen in. And it's a great example of people, even in these very expensive, exclusive communities, understanding that there's a value to opening up their community and being more inclusive. And once they understand that and commit to that, that they can actually make some change. All right. This is a simple question and and I'll ask it first and then I'll rephrase it. What is your take on reparations? How does that fit in to this context? You're both California people. We've heard from Leah a lot, so I'll ask Richard to chime in first. Well, we don't use the term reparations in the book at all. One of the underlying themes of the book is that there is no political will today in this country to enact serious national policy, much less reparations, that would once and for all bring African Americans up to a level of equality. Our focus in the book is remedies for specific identifiable harms, such as the ones we've been describing. Because in our view, a new civil rights movement that is really going to rise to the level of significant national change has to start at the local level with the kinds of committees that Lee has been talking about and win real victories that might be small, but that um, would cascade into significant differences and perhaps uh, in the long run uh, develop a better national climate for making these kinds of changes. Let me give you one example, another California example. In our book, we have a photograph of a picket line outside a bank whose name you might be familiar with, uh, First Republic Bank. The picket line uh, was from a local organization of tenants. Let me say First Republic Bank had a business model that was over-invested in uh, owners of large apartment buildings. As you know, one of the reasons it failed was it didn't have a balanced portfolio. And this community organization 
discovered that the bank was making, issuing mortgages to the owners of these large apartment developments with um, a prediction of a financial stream that would support the mortgage that could only be achieved if the rent levels were higher than the present rent levels in the development. So in other words, the bank was financing gentrification and displacement of existing residents because the whole mortgage was based on the assumption that they would evict existing residents and get higher rents. That is a, a very local issue. Every bank should have a community organization scrutinizing its portfolio to see if it's lending to uh, apartment owners who are getting loans on the basis of the requirement that they evict present tenants, in effect. You know, that's not building affordable housing on the golf course. And that's why Leah said that every community is different. It's not that we don't, we just say, start anywhere. We have lists and lists of places that people can start based on the particular conditions in their communities. And this is just a complete opposite of the Menlo Park situation that Leah was talking about, both California examples, and both giving an opportunity to racial justice activists in their communities to actually do something about it. It has a national feel, this issue of financing properties, but here it becomes very local. And in the book, you, you get at a couple of other issues that really felt like very national issues, but they suddenly become local when, say, like the Green Lining Institute in Oakland gets involved and we start talking about um, home values, you know, or, or in that case, it was credit scores, maybe. Um, but like credit scores, I kind of feel as a national issue, but it becomes a local issue if you make it so. Am I correct? Yeah. So credit scores, we all know what a credit score is. We think of it as an objective rating of our future likelihood of repaying a debt. So if you have a high credit score, you're more likely to get a mortgage at a good rate. If you have a low credit score, you probably won't get a mortgage at all makes some sense. We think it's, you know, based on fact, it's based on numbers, your financial history, it's, it's objective, it's an algorithm, so it must be right. And, and <laughs> the problem is, is that it is based on your financial history. And so if you've had a mortgage in the past and you've paid it faithfully and you haven't missed payments, you have, you're likely to have a higher credit score. And that makes some sense. If you've defaulted on a, a mortgage in the past, you're likely to have a low credit score. That makes sense too. But the problem is, is that a credit score factors into the, what factors into a credit score is only a certain type of financial history. And it's a type of financial history that whites are far more likely to have than African Americans. So a previous mortgage will count towards your credit score. But if you've been a renter your whole life, which African Americans are more likely to have been renters before when applying for a mortgage than whites for all of the reasons we're talking about. Um, if you've been a renter your whole life and have never missed a rent payment, you don't get benefit for that faithful payment um, in your credit score. They don't count rental payment history at all. Same with utility bill payment history or alimony payments. There's a lot of payments that could prove that you are a good candidate for a mortgage that just aren't factored in. So as a result, um, about a third of African Americans have no credit score at all compared to 17% of whites, so that's about double. And of those that have a credit score, African-Americans' credit scores are, uh, 20% of African-Americans have high enough credit scores to uh, be eligible for a mortgage, compared to over half of whites. 
So this is all because of what we factor into a credit score. And for all of the reasons we've talked about, African-Americans have been kept out of home ownership, so they ha don't have a mortgage history to show. They live in neighborhoods that are less likely, less likely to have traditional banks and bank branches, so they rely more on non-traditional financial services like payday loans, um, and none of that counts towards your credit score. So all of these sort of structural ways that the credit score is discriminatory in effect, even if not in intent. And, and yes, it's a national issue. It's one that the, you know, we've been talking about nationally, I think, for 15 years. And this year, Fannie Mae, uh, I think, introduced a pilot program to count rental payment history. So 15 years is a long time to wait for uh, federal change. And it's still not changed across the board. But we can do something about it locally because we have banks and credit unions and um, community development um, finance institutions in our communities that provide mortgages, and they can start factoring into their credit algorithms. They can start using um, rental payment history and utility bill payment history. They don't now because it's a little bit harder. They're given mortgage payment history information, and it takes a little more to collect rental history, but it's not impossible and we give some examples of communities where local bank branches or credit unions start doing that, and it really boosts the eligibility of African-Americans for mortgages. So that's an example of something that seems like we can't do anything about it here at home because we have to wait for something bigger to change, but we can start changing it now. Let me add something to that, if I may. Uh, when Fannie Mae uh, issued this uh, new, new experiment to count rental uh, payments, uh, they issued a press release. I don't know if the fellow who wrote that press release still has his job. But in the press release, they said that if rental payments had been used uh, for the last three years, 17% of all of those families, applicants, who had been turned down for mortgages in the last three years would have been eligible for mortgages. Well, a local community group should be identifying who those 17% of people were and going to the banks and conducting campaigns which might ultimately lead to direct action against those banks, for compensation for those 17% of applicants for homes who would have gotten a mortgage had their faithful rental payments been counted. This is a fun question from the <laughs> audience, and um, all of this is fun, but I, this question is fun, and you don't have to spend a long time answering it, but it's fun. Have you sent a copy of The Color of Law to John Roberts and other members of the Supreme Court? <laughs> I haven't yet. Does anybody have his address? <laughs> no, but I don't care about John Roberts. You know, John Roberts will change when the country forces him to change, and not because he's read a book. All right. Should these multiracial coalitions build power to ultimately impact federal law and policies since the federal government has the broadest authority and power? Well, we, our entire book is devoted to local action. And for you know, the example I gave with credit scores, we could wait forever for federal change to happen and you know, not see much change. And we understand that there isn't the federal political will to make these changes right now. We know that eventually to see the changes we want to see and that we imagine in this book on the national level, we'll need national policy change. But to get there, we need to start locally. 
And there's so much that can be done locally that can impact these issues that actually the federal government has nothing to do with. Zoning laws, um, you know, the credit scores with the banks, the, a lot of the examples we're talking about, land trust, Section 8, all of these um, examples are purely local issues. So um, there's a lot that we can do now locally. We don't need to wait for the federal government. And, and if we choose to wait for the federal government, nothing will happen. What do you think of the YIMBY movement started in the Bay? Yes, in my backyard. Um, Richard? Well, it's a very positive development. Uh, reforming zoning that prohibits the construction of anything but single-family homes on large lot sizes is a very important step in the long road to redress segregation. But it's not the final step. And uh, the Yimbies, and I, this is not a criticism of them, like I say, it's a very important step, but the Yimbies represent primarily um, tech workers, um, upper middle income workers, who today cannot find housing in the communities where they were brought up or really anywhere in, in um, residential areas of California because of the housing crisis that we have. So I hope the Yimbies are successful in getting the kinds of zoning uh, reform and implementing and requiring the kind of zoning reform that uh, they've made some progress in so far at the state level. But once they've done that, they've got to ensure, and we've all got to ensure, it's not their job, it's, uh, we've all got to ensure that uh, the families that occupy the new housing that's created that's more appropriately uh, priced are families who've historically been excluded from housing and not just those who have the income in any other economy to buy housing, but can't in the present economy. Um, how could investment in public infrastructure, especially in more segregated areas, help drive a more just society? What role does infrastructure investment play? Well, in our book, we talk about uh, two kinds of policies. And both are essential. We've, in this conversation, we've talked mostly about opening up exclusive white neighborhoods. But as we all know, the neighborhoods where African Americans have been, uh, to which African Americans have been restricted, have less adequate infrastructure and resources of all kinds. Uh, pollution, pollu uh, industry, polluting industries were permitted to locate in black neighborhoods and prohibited from locating in white ones. Uh, those neighborhoods uh, have highways that were driven through them, and it's gotten a lot of attention lately, to destroy African-American homes. The Santa Monica Freeway in Los Angeles, uh, for example, its route was moved to purposely destroy a black neighborhood when it could have been routed in a place that wouldn't destroy anybody's housing. So these are all historical explicit racial policies that created inferior conditions in black neighborhoods, and we need investment in those neighborhoods to improve their quality, to make the quality of life better for the people who remain in them until such day as they can choose whether to remain in them or not. So my last question to both of you is, are you hopeful? I can start. <laughs> okay. Um, I am. I mentioned earlier that, you know, before writing this book, I was 
sort of struck and overwhelmed by the history and color of law. I wouldn't say I felt hopeful about uh, the prospect of making any change in these issues then. But working on this book, researching all of the many, many things that can be done to redress segregation and to challenge it and provide remedies and then to meet and talk to people around the country who are working on all of these things. Every community we've gone to, people are actively engaged in these issues and making progress. There's all these little pieces to the puzzle, and there's a lot of pieces that went into creating segregation, and there's going to be a lot of pieces that go into undoing it. And so all these communities are working on one piece or another piece, but together it it will lead somewhere, and it does give me hope. And I... Um, I hope that as we go around the country talking about this book, I can just keep telling people, like, there are people like you everywhere doing this. And, um, yeah, it's left me feeling very hopeful and I, I'm a little scared to say, but optimistic <laughs> that okay. something good could, could, could happen. Yeah. Because there's some blunt stuff in this book. It's, it's, a, it's blunt in its assessment of the situation that we're in. But, Richard, are you hopeful? Well, I'm mainly hopeful because there are people of Leah's generation who are taking this seriously. And I think they have the capacity to uh, make change. It's not going to happen overnight, but to begin the process of creating a more racially just society. We can go on for a really long time on this. Um, this has been very exciting, but we got to finish somewhere. I would like to again thank Silicon Valley Community Foundation for its support of this program. And, of course, thank you, Richard and Leah Rothstein, for writing Just Action, an essential book and guide for fighting segregation in our communities. Thank you very much for joining us. My name's Brian Watt. Thank you for joining us for this program from Inform at the Commonwealth Club. We're open and hosting all kinds of amazing programs, and we'd love to see you here. Join us in person in downtown San Francisco. Find out about tickets at commonwealthclub.org slash inform. We hope you enjoyed this radio program. Today, you heard from Leah and Richard Rothstein in conversation with Brian Watt. Join us again next time for another new program from Inform. Thanks for listening.